And our scripture is 2 Corinthians uh, 2, 5 to 17. This is page 6 of your bulletin. 2 Corinthians 2, 5 to 17. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. <clears throat> so I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, and to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are uh, continuing our sermon series through the book of 2 Corinthians. And today we're going to look at a unique story of a man uh, who was being disciplined, and then his discipline stops. It's over. Um, Paul then connects uh, the forgiveness this man receives with the aroma of Christ, pleasant to some and offensive to others. So my son asked me the other day how not to be angry. So little boys uh, can really struggle with anger. Um, so can grown men and women. And I remember that before I was a Christian, um, I was actually often pretty angry. I'd get angry about very small things. And I remember there was a satisfaction I felt on hold, of holding on to that anger. Like it felt good, or at least for a time, to be angry. But I also remember that anger ruling me. When I was hurt, I, wouldn't, I would not forgive I'd hold on to that anger like the one ring, my precious. I'd be quick uh, to withhold love or kindness, thinking that it was in my best interest. My selfishness ultimately is what was ruling me. When I became a Christian, um, a large majority of that anger vanished. And it was uh, for this reason I realized my offense against God. I realized that my sin against God was great. I understood that my sin was against a sinless man named Jesus who did nothing but love me. And when I grasped my sin, my heart softened and I repented and believed. 
And since then, I experience anger, uh, but my anger is greatly subdued because of what Jesus did for me. When I'm tempted to lash out at others, I remind myself of the gospel. So today we're looking at a passage on discipline, forgiveness, and the aroma of Christ. And the big idea I want us to see is this, that in Christ, retribution changes to restoration in offenses into forgiveness. Retribution changes into restoration and offenses into forgiveness. And we're going to look at this through three points. Uh, these happen to be three P's. Just worked out that way. The purpose of discipline, the practice of forgiveness, and the perfume of the Christian life. So the purpose, the practice, and the perfume. So let's begin with the purpose of discipline. So the first thing you are probably wondering is what was the offense of this person who was punished by the majority? And uh, many suggestions have been made. Um, Older commentators around the time of Calvin linked this man to 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul condemns a man who had his father's wife, his mother-in-law. Is this the same man? It's possible, but it's unlikely. In 1 Corinthians 5, that man was excommunicated by the church. And Paul made it clear that the church was to remove the leaven from the lump. Paul told the church to purge the evil person among them. And so Calvin would say that this is the same man and that the church never actually went through with Paul's instructions. Is that possible? Sure. But it's unlikely because we have no reason to believe that. Um, More likely is that this man was somehow related to 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul talks about there are these four factions in the church. Um, Some followed Paul, some followed Apollos, some followed Cephas, some followed Christ. And perhaps this man was a leader of one of those factions that were against Paul. Or perhaps this man did something else, something we don't know about. In fact, we don't actually know what he did, and I believe that's what... Paul is intentionally doing. He does not use his name, um, and he doesn't tell us what he did. He leaves it anonymous for a reason, and I think it's verse 7, so that this man isn't overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. A man who's already feeling overwhelmed. Now, I want you to pay attention here. Paul is treating this man who sinned and was disciplined with grace. He's not heaping shame on a man who is already sorrowful for his sin. There's an end to discipline, and the end has come. I want you to notice that Paul is handling the offense impersonally in verse 5. There's a lot to learn here. Um, Parents, when your child is acting crazy, when they disobey for the hundredth time, When you say, don't touch that, and they look at you, and they smile, and they touch it. Do not take it personally. Don't take it personally. Discipline works best when we can have an objective view of the situation. This is what Paul is doing in verse 5. He's saying that like, like disciplining children, they are only really hurting themselves. 
And like a responsible parent, Paul's handling the discipline without taking personal offense on himself. Now, there are some helpful things to reflect on here when thinking about corporate discipline or discipline in your home. The first is the discipline is never punitive. It's always restorative. I want you to remember this. Christian discipline is never punitive. It's always restorative. And this is because this is how Jesus treats you and me. Do you think when God disciplines you in your life that it's ever a punishment so he can get even with you? Do you think he's punishing you so you can pay him back for some of your sins? Absolutely not. No. Jesus paid all of your sins now and forever. You have nothing to give Jesus that he has not already given to you. All your debt was paid. So his discipline is never to punish you. It's to restore you. To bring you back in alignment with him. Now you can apply this discipline in your life. Whether it's someone um, that maybe you manage at work, or if you're a parent, or even if you are disciplining yourself, your own mind, your own body, all our discipline goes um, only as far as is helpful for the person being disciplined. If you go beyond it, you're moving into the land of vengeance. And vengeance is mine, declares the Lord, I will repay Now, second, discipline is both individual and corporate. Uh, This was corporate discipline. The whole church was involved. Perhaps this man's sin affected the whole church. One thing I want you to note is this man was broken over his sin. For some of you, uh, just sinning and having um, one person know about it can feel crushing. Um, Like you're dying. I want you to imagine having the whole church know. Uh, It can be overwhelming to have the majority of people know. And again, Paul's careful to not allow the discipline to go beyond its purpose. Um, We have had corporate acknowledgement of sin in our church. It's necessary. We've had a few cases in the last 18 years of our church's existence where we've had formal discipline cases where the offense rose to the level of the whole session being involved. And in some cases, it did mean that we ended up notifying the members of the church. And in some cases, we were able to keep it within the session. Ultimately, we are looking for the person to be restored. That's the point. All right, thirdly, I want you to look at verse 8. Reaffirm your love for him. When someone is being disciplined... They need a lot of encouragement. They need need to be reminded that you love them. So Robert Murray McShane is known for saying um, this in a letter to his friend. He He said, I trust that your own studies got on well, dear friend, and uh, learn much of your own heart. And when you've learned all you can, remember you have seen but a few yards into a pit that is unfathomable. Quote, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17, 9. Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, 
Such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace and all for sinners, even the chief. The point is that every time you sin and you feel sorrow, look ten times to Jesus. We all need encouragement. So that is the purpose of discipline. Now I'm going to move on to the practice of forgiveness. In verses 9 to 11, the word for forgive in Greek is charizomai. And uh, you may be familiar with the first part of this word. It's charis. In fact, we have two people in our church named charis. Um, In the Bible, charis means grace. So charizomai means to show grace to those who've hurt you. Now, grace is free and grace is costly. When we forgive people as Christians, we do it knowing that we will have to pay a cost. So, um, three short points on forgiveness. First, forgiveness is showing grace by letting go of the hurts done to you so that you can continue in relationship with this person. Uh, This can be with or without a person's apology to you. So, so many times in my own life, I was able to forgive someone without them saying sorry to me. Uh, Proverbs 19.11 says, It is your glory to overlook an offense. Second, forgiveness means that you no longer hold any resentment or bitterness in your own heart towards that person. So you're able to let go of the offense inside of you. You don't keep dwelling on it. You don't keep imagining what it would be like to get in an argument with that person. It's gone. Third, forgiveness means that you treat the person the way that Jesus treats you. So how many times does Jesus teach us to forgive our brother? Three or four times? Seventy times, seven times. And we learned from Pastor Matt that seven is the number of completion. So how many times do you think Jesus has forgiven you? So 70 times 7 is 490. Um, I know I have sinned more than 490 times in my life. Um, So like Jesus, we're to continually forgive as we are continually forgiven. Now as a subnote, does forgiveness mean we throw away wisdom? No, of course not. But at the same time, we acknowledge forgiveness will hurt. Now look at verse 9. What is the test? In the context, the test is forgiveness. Are the Corinthians able to forgive? One of the tests to know whether I'm a Christian or not is if I can forgive in all circumstances. I don't get to, give, I don't get to forgive in 99% of my life and then in that 1% harbor anger and bitterness. I have to forgive 100% because I was forgiven given 100%. And supposedly, whatever this guy did was pretty bad. And Paul is testing the church to forgive. Now I want you to see how liberal Paul is with forgiveness in verse 10. He says, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Paul set an example for them for their sake in the presence of Christ, of how generous you can be with forgiveness. Paul isn't even there, and he says, if you forgive the man's offense, then I forgive it too. I trust your judgment. I don't need to put the man under my own trial. 
Now, what if this offense was actually against Paul? Maybe it was, and that's all more to the point, isn't it? If you forgive him, then I forgive him. It's good enough. Now, this is what our culture needs right now. People are harboring anger like never before. People want justice so badly that they forget what forgiveness is. Justice is good. But I want you to remember, vengeance belongs to the Lord. Forgiveness belongs to me and you. I want you to imagine a world that is quick, quick to forgive. Kind of sounds like heaven, doesn't it? One last point on forgiveness, and that's verse 11. What are the designs of Satan? The designs of Satan is this, that you would withhold forgiveness. If you withhold forgiveness, you are falling right into the trap of Satan. There is perhaps no greater weapon that Satan has than to separate brothers and sisters in Christ. Satan wants you to be mad. He wants you to be mad at your parents. Satan wants you to harbor bitterness towards your brother or your sister. Satan wants a wife to stay angry with her husband. Satan wants churches divided, sessions torn apart. Satan wants you divided politically and nationally. Satan wants you to create division in the places of disagreement in every area of life. And if you can't forgive, then you have fallen into the designs of Satan. I heard a testimony the other day of a man who came to faith because he saw his father forgive. He said that as a boy, he saw how hurt his father was, and how much pain this offense caused him, and that when his father still forgave the offense, the son came to understand the gospel. The gospel is that all of us have sinned and deeply wounded God, our creator, who loves us. And he loves us so much that through Jesus Christ on the cross, our sins have been forgiven. So we look at the purpose, we look at the practice, and I want to now take a look at the perfume of the Christian life. This next section is, uh, if verses 12 to 13, sorry, in this next section, verses 12 to 13 can feel like a left turn. Um, but it's actually not unrelated to the previous section. Paul's point is that he had a plan, and the Lord changed that plan. But that doesn't matter, because verse 14, Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. So how can we be in procession of triumph if we haven't won yet? Commentators take this uh, to be a statement of certainty. If you are a Christian, your future is so certain that it is as if you can say that the triumph has already occurred. Jesus is taking you right where he wants you to be. And why is he taking you there? To spread the aroma of Christ. And this is where we can make the connection to our previous section in verses 5 to 11. What is the aroma of Christ? Well, the aroma of Christ is pleasant. It smells good to those who are being saved. And the aroma of Christ stinks to those who are perishing. Now, I want you to hear me on this. If you meet a Christian and he is kind 
and generous and speaks the truth in love and is quick to forgive an offense, is that aroma pleasing to you? Of course, but it's not pleasing to everyone. For some, the aroma of Christ is unpleasant. People can actually take offense at you, calling you insincere or disingenuine, perhaps hypocrites or Bible thumpers. People can slam doors in your face and criticize you because you have shown grace. If they slap you on the left cheek and you offer the right cheek, they may hit you twice as hard. But I want you to hear me. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with Jesus. You know, the illustration that came to my mind when I was writing this sermon was cilantro. (laughs) Some people love cilantro. I love cilantro. I grew cilantro in my garden the past few years. Um, Putting fresh cilantro on a taco, it just brings that taco to life. Sing sing head head nods there. Um, some, for some of you, uh, cilantro tastes exactly like soap. <laughs> so I think this is actually a genetic thing. Um, so if you, if you put a cilantro on a taco, and I was to give that taco to you, even if I made the world's best taco, the cilantro would ruin it for you. All you would taste is soap in your mouth. So nothing's wrong with the taco. It's the cilantro in it. Well, the thing that can be offensive to people is Christ in you. And unlike cilantro, you can't take Jesus out of you. To one, it's a fragrance from death to death. To another, from life to life. Verse 16. This is why Paul says, who is sufficient for these things? Friends, the reality is, if I could continue my taco analogy. If Jesus is the cilantro, we are not the world's most gourmet tacos that he indwells. We're closer to the $1 tacos that I ate at Taco Bell when I was in college. (laughs) Who is sufficient to be a dwelling place for Jesus? I'm not. You're not. But by God's grace, because he has forgiven us, He's made us right. He dwells in us. And he finds us to be a suitable home. He's able to make anyone who is in Jesus sweet smelling. Because Christ is in you. Do you think Jesus can't use you? Do you feel like you're too lost in your sins? Or your failures are too broken because of your past? Well, cheer up. You're not sufficient on your own. But Jesus makes you sufficient. Now, hopefully you can see how this is tied into sincerity in verse 17. I used to have a discussion with my dad uh, about Christianity, and he'd use this phrase kind of often. He'd say to me, well, that's what you're selling. And I remember I was explaining what grace is to him, and I tell him that all you need to come to Jesus is nothing. All you need to do to be saved, is to come to him and to believe in him as your savior and that uh, he will receive you and forgive your sins. And my dad would say, it's too easy. How could that be? 
And I explained that this wasn't you know, just my personal view of the Bible, but this is our denominational view. And he'd respond and say, well, that's what you're selling. And you know, that always really bothered me to assume that I was selling something. I want you to look at verse 17. We are not peddlers of God's word. We are not selling anything. I thought about this. Look, I love being a preacher, but I could get many other jobs that pay more money for less work. We also don't give money to the church to support an institution the way you would like a hospital. God doesn't need our money. In fact, he doesn't need any of us. He chooses to use us and we graciously get to participate in his work. But he doesn't need us. Thirdly, selling Jesus implies an ulterior motive. It's insincere. Selling Jesus implies that there is something for me to gain personally. And here's the truth. As others have said in the past, I am a dying man preaching to dying men. We are on the rescue boat and we are calling out to anyone who would be saved because there is room on this boat for anyone who calls on the name of Jesus. So I hope this is clear to you. What gain does a Christian have when he forgives? None. There's only loss to himself. Someone has to take the cost. What gain is there when people ridicule you or despise you for for your faith? When the aroma of Jesus in you stinks to the world? There's no gain. You're just smelly. You know, one practice our church has always had, which I admire, is that we don't know who gives money at this church. We know how much is being given in total, but we don't know who gives what. And we don't want there to be a doubt of our sincerity. I'll end with this. If you really want to know if someone is sincere, it's if they would bet their life on it. There's this temptation to hurt others back when we've been hurt, to hold on to anger, to withhold love if love's been withheld from you, or even to try and hide the aroma of Jesus if you're embarrassed or ashamed. The gospel is that Jesus was so sincere in his love for you that he held nothing back. He was unashamed to die for you and for me when we were like an unfaithful spouse to him. He is liberal with his love, showering forgiveness on us whenever we come to him with our sin. And to those who are being saved, the aroma of Christ is attractive. He draws us near by the grace and the mercy he gives to us. Jesus spared no cost, no expense. He withheld nothing so that you might freely, without cost, with sincere hearts, come to him. So that's my plea. Go to Jesus. Taste and see that he's good. Let's pray.